All right, joining us now is Dr. Robert Cialdini, a Regents Professor with the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Dr. Cialdini's psychological research has appeared in Scientific American. He is the author of Influence, Science and Practice, and currently is the most cited living social psychologist in the world. Dr. Cialdini, welcome to Radio Parallax. Well, I'm pleased to be here. I, uh, I love the fact that your book is, uh, is subtitled Science and Practice, because you, you blend uh, what you expect from, some, from a, a regent's professor, a scholarly work relating to, uh, to social science and, and, and what research has shown us. But you also, I love this, infiltrated training programs for professionals that sell. Yes. Um, I did think that um, an entirely academic approach wasn't appropriate to truly understanding the power of the persuasion process and the influence process as it worked in the kinds of situations that we all face every day. Well, certainly people who, who, uh, who sell for a living have, have learned a thing or two about, about how to do that. So I was fascinated, having been myself probably the worst vacuum cleaner salesman in Sacramento history. <laughs> well, that's probably because you didn't come to me, to my door. <laughs> I would have bought it. That's why I got well, uh, interested in studying the influence process. As I say in my book, I, all my life I'd been a sucker. And out of the process of, of self-defense, I, I decided I'd better learn about these things. There's a crying need for this. Uh, you cited a study uh, on couples who had some unresolved issues that one is trying to persuade the other of something. And, uh, and it was very eye-opening how research showed that three different approaches had uh, varied results. The first people started to be very hardball. If you don't change X, I won't change Y. They, some people were all just tried a rational approach, reasoning, and some were just basically... Um, framing the issue in terms of we, us, and our. Can you tell us about how those relatively worked? What they found was that uh, if one member of the, of the couple said, look, I want you to change in my direction uh, or else, not only that was that ineffective, it actually produced a boomerang effect. <laughs> you probably recognize this yourself from uh, <laughs> yes. the relationships you're in. Anytime you try to uh, push or intimidate, you get... Uh, uh, the opposite result of a boomerang effect. It also applies in business and politics. In almost any range of, uh, of experience, we're going we're gonna to find that, that it's a, it's a wrong-headed approach. Uh, then there was the rational uh, uh, orientation, which was essentially, look, if you'll just think a little harder about all these issues, you'll see that my position is the cogent one. It's the rational one. So think a little harder and you'll come along. Right. Completely ineffective. Right. But the savvy persuaders in these relationships said to their partner, you know, we've been together for a long time now. I wonder if you could accommodate me on this one. Or they said, you know, we both want the same thing here. Could you move in my direction here and, and help uh, achieve that? Mm -hmm. And even in the most streamlined version which was simply to use the, the words we, our, and us in describing the, the problem and the, uh, the, the recommended solution. That was enough to get the other member of the pair to, to come into line to change their uh, opinions. So the key was to use the power of the relationship, all of the trust, all of the confidence, all of the background that goes with that like a lot of the research you cite in this book, this would, would immediately have practical applications. Uh, 
somewhere else you described um, another study of, of boys in summer camp naturally dividing into groups and how when when problems were framed such as we must cooperate, is something that one group cannot handle, we must work together on this, that was able to bring, uh, bring together kids that would not stop fighting. Exactly right. This was an interesting uh, study that showed, for example, if you, if you had the boys involved in certain kinds of competition, tug of war, for example, they're both pulling on a rope trying to move the other group uh, in their direction. Uh, all they got was resistance and uh, resentment uh, toward the winner. But if the camp counselor said, oh, look, the truck that's going to go into town to get us new supplies is stuck in the mud, let's all pull on that same rope in the same direction. Not only did they get the truck out of the mud, now they became fast friends with one another, their previous rivals. So one way to assure that the people who... Uh, we want to cooperate with us toward common goals, we'll do so, is to arrange circumstances so that we have mutual goals, mutual purposes that are fulfilled first before we get into any of the, the more uh, contentious areas of, uh, of an exchange. Because now we've got, uh, instead of uh, foes uh, thinking together on this, we've got friends thinking together. Well, said sometimes that great truths are quite simple, and, and I really, uh, I'm, I'm quite stunned from your research to see that you have taken these multitude of factors that are important to persuasion and sifted them down really into what amounts to six elements, all based on key, really shortcuts we all must use in our, in our day-to-day living, and, that, um, and this was sort of the key to understanding influence and persuasion. That's right, Doug. Uh, After I uh, spent all this time, first of all, in my laboratory researching the psychology of influence in rigorous experiments, and then out in the training programs, I tried to put this all together and see which factors emerged uh, consistently from all of this evidence. And it, it was surprising to me that there were only six principles of influence that seemed to concentrate, rise to the surface, and persist whenever you examine the, the influence process in a systematic way. I'd like to go through all six, uh, one after the other, and, and have you briefly summarize them. But, but before doing that, as a psychologist, you've noted that human behavior, animal behavior, can be quite complex, but um, it tends to follow oftentimes um, in the same fashion, in the same order, and it has a trigger. And this is a key to understanding a lot of this. Exactly. Uh, we are either socialized or we are evolved to respond to certain kinds of triggers that produce a behavior in us that normally works because this, this behavior so frequently is in our best interest to uh, undertake. Um, it can unroll in, un- in an unthinking kind of automatic way because it normally steers us correctly. Uh, and each of these principles uh, is one of those kinds of behaviors that has been installed in us uh, from uh, childhood or even before uh, by the evolution process to, uh, to give us a, a, a quick response that's normally correct. And so if one or another of these principles is incorporated into, way, into the way that someone asks for a request from us, we're simply much more likely to say yes. I would like to cite an ex- uh, just one thing for your research, uh, Dr. Cialdini, the Schmidt Principle, which was based on a fellow I went to college with here back in the Paleolithic era, 
Schmidt was unfailingly guided by the fact that if it cost more, it must be better. Expensive equals good. That's a rule that we've learned for uh, most of our lives. And normally it steers us correctly, especially in an area where we don't know very much about a particular set of products or services. We assume that the more expensive ones are the better ones, because normally they are. You gave an example in your book, uh, Influence, Science, and Persuasion, of, of someone uh, that didn't want to get a, a, some jewelry because the, the, the jeweler offered to mark it down, and to him that meant it was, it was not very good. That's right. And, and uh, you know, there's some famous cases of this. Uh, Schiffes Regal, Regal the, the, the Scotch brand, mm-hmm. uh, began as a rather moderate to low-priced brand, and they weren't selling a lot. And then one of their marketing people said, well, let's just, let's just double the price without changing the quality. <laughs> and their, their sales skyrocketed. Fascinating. Something maybe on the opposite end of that, you, you, you cite in the book, and I, and I love this, using a principle of contrast. Now, it doesn't surprise me to learn from your book that real estate agents might go show people some dumps before they then show them the houses they think they're more likely on. But I didn't realize that some companies would actually buy and maintain dumps for the specific purpose of having the customer take a look and go, I wouldn't want that. What these organizations will do is have things that they will show us that are unattractive, immediately before they give us access to the property they have us targeted for, which now seems like it glows in comparison (laughs) to this dump that they first showed us. We're speaking with Robert Cialdini, author of Influence, Science, and Practice. Dr. Cialdini, let's talk about some of the these these basic six elements um, that are so important to persuasion. The the first on your list would be um, reciprocation. Yeah, in some ways, this might be the most elemental form of human interaction, the idea that people feel obligated to give back to others whatever they have received from those others. If somebody gives us something, we feel obligated to give back the form of behavior they have given to us. So, for example, the American Disabled Veterans Organization, when they send out their direct mail solicitations for contributions to their organization, and it's a legitimate organization, mm-hmm. they get about an 18% hit rate from their, uh, from their list. But if they include in the envelope a little packet of gummed, personalized address labels, right. you know, that you put on right. your, your, your envelopes, the hit rate goes from... 18% to 35% of the people then send in a contribution. You must not take without giving in return. You must not take without giving in return. Our mothers taught that to us from childhood. When, when I read your book, I thought so much of uh, when I was in, in Turkey a few years back, there was a market in Istanbul, had a lot of leather, and I thought it might be a nice time to buy leather jackets. Every store I went into, the, the, the proprietor insisted I have some of his, of his apple tea. Because any time you receive, you now are one down in terms of the exchange process. Yes, it, it can backfire. That I noticed a picture, a very funny picture in your book of, of, of a Hare Krishna noted for doing this, this technique, being busted in a Santa Claus suit for trying to give people candy and expecting a donation. That's it didn't right. work on the Santa Claus guys. No, it didn't work because uh, he, he didn't have the right license to, <laughs> to solicit in that suit. So the police uh, busted him. 
Second, second element that influences uh, persuasion, uh, commitment and consistency. You quote with a quote from Leonardo. The, the basic principle is that I can significantly increase the likelihood that you will say yes to a request if before I make the request of you, I ask you to take a step or a stand that's logically consistent with the request that I'm going to make uh, a little later. Uh, so what uh, Leonardo da Vinci said is it's easier to resist at the beginning than at the end. So if I can get you to say yes at the beginning by just giving you a small step that I'm going to ask you to take, now you're going to be much more likely to say yes uh, subsequently. So, for example, there was this, uh, uh, a problem that uh, restaurant owners all face. It's no-shows. People who um, call, book a table, but then don't appear for it without canceling. There's a man in Chicago named Gordon Sinclair who's figured out a way to do how to reduce this problem by having his receptionist say two words differently when she takes a reservation than she did before. Previously, she said, thank you for calling Gordon's. Please call if you have to change or cancel your reservation. You've heard that many, many times, I'm mm, sure. Yeah. He instructed her to say instead, thank you for calling Gordon's. Will you please call if you have to change or cancel your reservation? Hmm. And she is instructed to pause. Now, if I said that to you, would you please call if you have to change or cancel your reservation? What would you say? Sure. Sure. And that's the commitment. Wow. And now, after people have gone on record saying, yes, I will, no shows at that restaurant have dropped from 30% to 10% with two words. That's it's fascinating. Powerful two words because they hook into a process yeah. that we all adopt, and that is to be consistent with our previous commitment. I found the example you gave in your book rather hair-raising of just how far you can take that, and in, in, in the case being cited was that of POWs in the Korean War. The Chinese who were running some of the prison camps in Korea during that time were experts at getting small steps of prisoners that they would lead through a long sequence of successive approximations to much larger steps. So, for example... Uh, in their interrogation uh, sessions, they might ask somebody, an American prisoner, now, let's just discuss political ideologies. Would you say, would you be willing to admit that the United States is not a perfect society? Well, I mean, everybody would sure. admit to that. Sure. sure, yeah, it is. Okay, so it's not perfect. You know, we've got economic downturns, we've got problems, r racism, and so on. Okay. Well, if that's the case, could you write down the problems that you think are uh, wrong with the United States? Not something that I'm going to force on you, things that you really believe. And the guy would write those down. Then the next week they'd come and he'd say, well, these are the, this is the list of things. What we'd like you to do is put these into an essay now that expanded on these problems. It's not something that we've forced on you, right? It's what you really believe. So just write down what you really believe is wrong with you country. The guy would come back with that essay, and then he would be asked to stand up and read the essay to another 
prisoner. The interrogator right. would say, well, it's what you said. Why would you be reluctant to do what you said? Then he would be asked to read that essay on a radio broadcast that would be sent across the DMZ to uh, troops in the, uh, in the South. And pretty soon this guy is giving aid and comfort to the enemy. It's, it's chilling. <laughs> it's, all by starting small with an initial commitment and then saying, well, be consistent with that commitment. Now take the next step to be consistent with that previous step. Now take the next step, not the next. And pretty soon they had guys doing these things that were uh, against what they would have ever dreamed of doing had that been the first thing they had been asked to do. Powerful tools. Reciprocation, commitment, and consistency. Third item on your list, social proof. One of the most prevalent ways that we decide what we should do in a situation is to look around us at what other people, like us, are doing or have been doing there. And that, we, that gives us a shortcut to decide, well, what's appropriate for us to do in a situation, especially when we're uncertain. We don't look inside ourselves for the answer. We look around, what are other people doing here? Because if they look, you look inside yourself, you only see uncertainty. Right. You show an example of a man laying in the street and people are walking by and they're, they're gauging their appropriateness of their response to how others are responding to the man. That's right. It's an ambiguous situation. Is this guy a drunk sleeping one off? Is this guy a heart attack victim? What is it? Well, you look at what other people are doing to decide how to uh, define that situation. There's a, a strategy that infomercial producers have now begun to use that uses this tactic very powerfully. In every infomercial, and you know what we're talking about, these late-night oh, sure. TV commercials mm -hmm. that go for a half an hour or so, and somewhere in that, m multiple times, you will hear something that's termed the call-to-action line, and it goes as follows. Operators are waiting. Please call now. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've heard that many times in the same sure. infomercial. There's a woman named Colleen Zott who is the infomercial queen of our society. He's written the most effective infomercials of all time. And she's changed the call to action line in her infomercials with great results on response. Hmm. She changed three words in that line. Instead of saying, operators are waiting, please call now. She has the voiceover say, if operators are busy, please call again. <laughs> That goes against all the rules right. of traditional marketing. Right. You're telling people that they're going to be inconvenienced right. if they call? Right. Think of the two images. Operators are waiting. They're filing their nails. They're twiddling their thumbs. <laughs> but if operators are busy, it means a lot of people, just like me, have decided this is the thing to do. It's, it's probably right for me, too. And, and, and calls have just skyrocketed. This is similar to the fourth one we might cite. It's not in the order that it's listed, but I think that scarcity, you know, that, oh. you're, that, that uh, supplies are limited. You're, you're very perceptive about that, uh, Doug, because what she does with that, with that is not just to say a lot of other people are doing it. Well, if a lot of other people are doing it, I might not be able to get it. This thing might become scarce. It might become unavailable to me. And that's the next principle of influence, that people want more of those things they can get less of. Remember the Cabbage Patch Kids craze? And yes. The Tickle Me Elmo? Yes. Every year there seemed to be one toy like that. There was always a toy like that yeah. that they had in short supply, and people went crazy right. trying to get them. The thing that struck me this year that was most interesting was not in the toy range. It 
was what happened to us this year with flu shots. Yes. People who last year couldn't be bothered, couldn't be dragged to get a flu shot. Now, because they were scarce, we're going on the black market to get these things. People want those things they can't have. Well, we have reciprocation, commitment and consistency, social proof, scarcity, all tools that, 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 that persuade us. Maybe the, maybe the one that I think people are most, uh, most familiar with is, is liking, that physically attractive models can sell cornflakes. Physical attractiveness increases liking, and there's sort of a, a, an aura of positivity that surrounds physically attractive individuals. And it, it's interesting. It even goes all the way back to childhood. Do you know that um, teachers rate physically attractive uh, students as more positive along a whole range of things like kindness and intelligence, even though that's not the truth. There's a kind of a halo effect phenomenon. If somebody is physically attractive, they get all kinds of positive assumptions associated with them. Well, it was probably a good idea for the Republicans to choose movie actor Ronald Reagan to be the standard bearer. He was noted as the Teflon president. Everyone just thought he was, you know, the uncle you wanted to have. That's right, and I think uh, the same thing was true uh, about Bill Clinton. The Republicans were so frustrated that he was Teflon-like in the same way the Democrats were frustrated yeah, sure. that Reagan, and both very attractive, amiable, positive uh, men, and that created liking, which created uh, positive behaviors with regard to uh, their candidacies. Last of your six elements, authority. The classic I love that you cited is that, that I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV, <laughs> and it still works. It still works. Yeah, because people decide, once again, based on shortcuts in modern life. We have uh, very many decisions we have to make, and we, we, we'll use shortcuts. Um, and one is, well, am I talking to an authority? If so, I'll probably be right if I just follow this person. So there is this wonderful study that was done in Texas where they took a man, put him on a crowded street corner, had him cross the street against the light, against the law, against the traffic, mm -hmm. to see how many pedestrians followed with him. Mm -hmm. And half of the time he was dressed in an open neck shirt and jeans and uh, athletic shoes. The other half of the time he was dressed in a, sh in a suit, press shirt, tie, shine shoes. 350% more people crossed the street with him into traffic when he was wearing a suit. Well, he's a guy that looks like he knows what he's doing. Yep. <laughs> Must be an expert. I can follow. I'll usually be right. In conclusion, um, you've taken these six elements to learn how it is we're persuaded, and, and you, have, you have stressed, well, number one, how we might not fall victim to this automatic response to some of these. And, and secondly, you've um, taken an overall strategy of, of promoting ethics in how such things are employed. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think it's very important uh, when we think about not just defending ourselves against these principles, but if we ever want to harness them to move people in our direction, it's crucial to identify these principles as they naturally reside in a situation and uncover them. That's entirely ethical. If we have genuine authority in a situation, if there's genuine social proof or consensus about our idea, genuine scarcity, we're entitled to raise them to the surface. And that's an ethical approach. Anything else is problematic and, I think, uh, to be discouraged. Well, Dr. Robert Cialdini, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Well, I enjoyed our time together, Doug. Uh, All right, thanks. In the land of the free.
I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.